you need a Bible, there's some in the seat pockets in front of you. We'll also put the, the verses on the screen as well. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about hypocrites this morning. <laughs> and everybody's like, yay, my favorite topic to talk about. <laughs> no. um, do you know where the word hypocrite actually came from? Um, it's a Greek word, and that was the word that they would use to describe an actor. Now, in Greek theater, um, there would, it would usually be a larger space, and you would be away from what's going on on the stage. And today, we watch like a movie or a TV show or something like that, and you have cameras that can zoom in, and you can catch the expression on the actor's face. And so the good actors, the best actors will not only know how to talk with the right expression and act with their arms and, and their body in, in an expressive way, but also their facial expressions will convey the emotion that the character they're playing is supposed to feel. Well, in a large setting in a Greek theater, you wouldn't necessarily be able to see that expression on the actors' faces, so they would wear these masks. And painted on the mask would be an expression of the emotion that the actor was trying to portray. And so these actors would wear a mask to show what was going on when under that mask, you couldn't really, it really didn't matter what their face looked like. So that's where we get that word hypocrite. It's someone who wears a mask to convey something different than what's going on underneath. And Jesus used this word hypocrite to describe um, this group of religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he did it in a very strong way. And so this is, this is kind of one of those things where Jesus takes the gloves off here. And he addresses the sin for what it is. Now, um, hypocrisy is maybe a sin in and of itself, but it's usually to cover up what's going on in our heart. Sinful behavior, sinful desire, sinful thoughts. And what the law does for us, and, and when I refer to the law, I'm talking about um, the law of Moses that was given to the people of Israel, that was um, over 600 different commands that God gave his people to govern their behavior and to tell them what was right and what was wrong. And what it does for us is it shows us where we're sinful. It shows us where we're broken. It shows what's wrong with us. Um, one of the ways I like to refer to this is as an MRI machine, right? Has anybody ever in here ever had an MRI done before? I'm, I'm grateful that I have not had that experience yet, but you like go into this tube and it's this advanced scan that shows what's wrong with your body. And um, what it, nobody in the history of, of all MRI scans has ever had an illness corrected by an MRI machine, Right? You can, you can go in there three or four times, and it's not going to fix the problem. It's going to reveal the problem. And that's what the law does for us. It points us to our sinfulness. It shows us the need for the Savior. But how many know that feeling guilty doesn't really change our behavior necessarily, right? It might cause us to evaluate some things, and it might cause us to put some things in place that would change our behavior, but feeling the weight of our guilt doesn't fix the problem. It just reveals to us that we need help. 
And that's what the law does for us. It shows us how broken we are and that we need a savior. So that was the old covenant that God had with his people. And and if they would follow this law perfectly, they would be made right before God. And to this day, there's only been one person who has ever fulfilled the law perfectly. And his name was Jesus Christ. The rest of us have failed miserably and continue to do so over and over and over again. And so under the old covenant, perpetual sacrifice would sanctify us and make us acceptable to God, but the stench of our sin was quick to return, right? So this sacrifice of, of um, bulls and, and goats and different animals, their blood would cover our sin, but it wouldn't make us right before God. Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross removed our sin, it forgave us, And it made us righteous before God. It was something that the law could not do. And now, his Holy Spirit, instead of the blood of animals, does the work of sanctification for us. So it used to be that sacrifice would would, um, allow people to have relationship with God. But now, today, we have relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And the work of sanctification is the Holy Spirit shaping us and molding us to be more like Christ. So the first thing that we need to do is recognize that despite Christ's forgiveness, sin is still a real problem for the believer. And it prevents us, even though it doesn't condemn us to hell anymore because of the work of Christ on the cross, it does prevent us from being the person that God wants us and designed us to be. And so Jesus teaches about sin in this chapter of Matthew 23, talking about the religious leaders and talking to the religious leaders. I don't want you to think that Jesus was saying this behind their backs, okay? Um, He was saying it to their faces and did so many times. But let's just jump into the text this morning in Matthew chapter 23. And I think it shows us three things about sin and what sin does to us. And uh, as as we... um, read through this, we'll we'll discover what those things are. So it starts in verse 1 saying, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach and do not practice. Now, I found this incredibly interesting, and I've read through this passage before and really haven't noticed this. The first thing that Jesus does is he recognizes the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. I love that he's about to eviscerate them, but he starts by saying, I'm going to criticize how they live, but they do have a rightful position of authority, and so you still have to listen to them. That's interesting, right? Now, I'm going to conduct a poll this morning, all right? How many of you would say, I don't really like that? Right? Ah, you know what? I don't like listening to people just because they're in a position of authority, even when I disagree with the way that they live their lives. And I would rather just ignore what they have to say. But Jesus is clearly saying, whether or not that's true, you still have to listen to them and you have to submit yourself to their authority. Like, oh, okay. Um, so 
Jesus, who has the ultimate authority from the Father in heaven, is saying to his followers that even though these people who are sitting in this position of authority aren't even saved, we'll get to that in a second, and are total hypocrites because of the position that they sit in, they still have to listen to them. Now, I don't like that, and you probably don't like that very much either, but that's the reality of understanding how God views authority. And let's keep reading in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, they're hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is what legalism is. It's requiring more than what God requires. It's putting a burden on people that God never intended them to carry. Let's keep reading. In verse 5, it says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And you're probably sitting there thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> what is a phylactery? Uh, I'm going to explain what they were. You see, back in, in the book of Exodus, as, as um, God was giving his people the law, Exodus 13.9 says this, And it shall be a sign to you on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So what people took with this particular passage of Scripture was, we need to take God's law, write it on a tiny little scroll, put it inside a box, and tie it to our forehead so that it's literally between our eyes. Have these people never heard of a metaphor before? <laughs> like, I mean, and we think of that, that is an absolutely crazy thing for somebody to do. And then the other thing that, that he referenced was the fringes. Now, fringes, um, they were actually more like tassels. And they were on Jewish garments that were worn by the men. And they were written about in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they were these tassels that would sit at the edge of their garment in the hem. And they, they were um, to remind people, they had a blue thread that would go through them. And they were to remind people to look toward heaven. And so it was just this, this kind of symbolic thing. Um, that, that God gave his people, and what the religious leaders were doing is they were making sure that theirs were bigger than the normal one so that everybody would see that they were following the law of Moses, so that everybody would recognize that they were more spiritual than the other people. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus himself, you want to talk about understanding authority, Jesus himself wore these tassels. We know this for a fact. In fact, it talks about the woman who was um, healed by the touching of the hem of his garment. What that word there in the Greek is referring to is the same word that's translated fringes here. It's the tassels between the hem of Jesus' garment. So we know that Jesus did this. You know what? He probably wore phylacteries too. And probably thought, this is stupid, but this is what they're telling us to do. And I want to honor this authority. Um, you know, we wear our version of phylacteries in a different way today. We want people to know how spiritual we are. 
Maybe it's something as silly as making sure that our Bible looks well-worn. Listen, I, I, I know that this is ridiculous, but when I uh, started as pastor here, I actually bought a brand new Bible um, to kind of commemorate a new era, and, and I was like, I don't know if I should use it at first. In fact, I have two Bibles here. This, this is the Bible that I bought seven years ago when we started pastoring here. And it, it still looks pretty nice. Honestly, it doesn't look that worn at all. There's not that much writing in it. And you know why? Because most of my Bible studies is done on a computer. But I also have this Bible from back when I was in high school, before we had cell phones or smartphones or anything like that, before um, we had the Bible on the computer. And this Bible looks like it's been through a war. And so if I want to look really spiritual... This is the Bible that I bring, right? I mean, it's got coffee stains on it. It's got rips in the page. It's got writing in there. It's got stuff underlined. This is the Bible of a spiritual person. Now, that's a silly example, right? I, and I know like that you're thinking that's ridiculous, but we do this with other stuff too, right? It's not just a physical thing like that. But maybe it's in the way that we serve. Maybe it's in the way that we present ourselves to other people. We want people to think that we are spiritual. We want people to think that we are godly and we want them to see our service. Um, let's try a tougher one. Where do you serve in the church? Maybe you're willing to lead worship on the stage where everybody can see you but don't ask me to serve in the nursery. You know, uh, this week I was, um, I was just noticing this. I, every um, Monday night we have an alpha class and um, we have to set up some tables in the kids' church room. And then um, it's used on Tuesday night as well. And then after that's over, um, usually on Thursday, I'll go in there and move out the tables. And... Um, put them back where they belong so that it can be ready for church on Sunday. I walked in there and somebody had already done that. I don't know who, right? But that's a perfect example of somebody doing something out of service, not expecting to get any credit or any recognition for it. That is the kind of heart that, that God values. That's the kind of service that he honors, that he respects. Um, and the the way that, that we get ourselves into trouble is this idea of comparison. When we start looking at ourselves compared to somebody else and we want to make sure that we seem more spiritual than they are. You know, I was just thinking about it this morning. Um, this, is a, this is a great illustration of how comparison can affect us because comparison can make you feel really good about yourself sometimes. It can also give you an inferiority complex. Like the person that leads worship after Rosalind. Feels pretty good, right? <laughs> Picture says a thousand words, right? Like when we compare ourselves to somebody else, we're always setting ourselves up for failure. There's, there's always somebody that's going to make us feel inferior. 
Let's keep reading in verse 6. It says, And they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus wasn't real big on titles. And, and frankly, neither am I. I'll give you an example. Um, if I meet someone for the very first time, I will introduce myself as Paul, usually. I don't say I'm Pastor Rizdal, and it's not because I'm ashamed of being a pastor. I don't mind it when people call me pastor. Um, in fact, my pastor is our district superintendent. I refer to him as Pastor Mark. I still call my pastor from Bethel's Rock, Pastor James. I love being a pastor, but sometimes what people do is they use titles to intimidate someone else, or they use them to make themselves feel good about who they are and what they've accomplished. And there's one title in particular that I frankly dislike. It's reverend. Listen, I am fine with being called pastor, but please don't call me reverend. If you call me Reverend Rizdal, I will probably correct you. Because here's the thing. I don't want you to revere me. I want you to revere God. Right? Uh, my favorite is when people who know nothing about church or denominations or the difference between Protestant and Catholic churches, there's a few times that I've been called Father. <laughs> and I just laugh a little bit, you know. <laughs> Listen, Jesus is not saying here, go home today after service, call your biological father up and say, you're not my dad anymore. Okay, because Jesus said so. Students, if you go to your teachers tomorrow and tell them, I only have one teacher and it's not you, I hope they put you in detention. All right? You better respect them and you better honor them because of the seat that they occupy. Okay? But Jesus is correcting the religious leaders and they're abusing that authority and that position and that title to elevate themselves to something rather than humbling themselves like a servant, like Jesus tells us to do. Now, here's the part of the passage where he begins to address their sin. And um, these are the things that I want us to learn about this passage. There are three things that I want us to learn as, as we go through this, these different woes. And he uses this word that's translated woe, but the actual word that he would have spoken would have most likely been oi. Now that sounds Jewish, doesn't it, right? Oy. <laughs> if, if he would have been teaching this lesson in Minnesota, he probably would have used a different word. He probably would have said oofta. <laughs> so as we're reading this, just think about that in your head. Oof. Oofta to you scribes and Pharisees, right? <laughs> but that's, it's not a real word. Oy isn't a real word. It's kind of like a grunt. Right? It's, it's an expression. And he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now that is a harsh statement that Jesus is making right off the bat. He's saying, not only are you not going to heaven, but you're stopping other people who would have gotten there without you. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I'm going to try that for my opening next week for <laughs> the introductory remarks for my message. See how that goes over. Like, Jesus is not messing around here. All right? That is a blunt statement. And what he's pointing out here is the first thing that I want us to recognize is that sin is serious. Sin is serious. It can separate you from a loving father who offered his son on the cross. And if you choose to live for yourself and to live for your flesh, and you choose your sinful behavior over the grace of Jesus Christ, it can cost you eternity. This is not something to mess around with. This is not something to take lightly. And Jesus' point to the, the Pharisees and the scribes was that not only is their sin affecting them, but it's affecting the people that are following them as well. Jesus is saying, you're literally taking your converts with you to hell. Let's keep reading in verse 16. It says, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple or that which has made the gold sacred? And if you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift of the altar, he's bound by his oath. All right, that might seem like a strange couple of statements. What Jesus is actually doing here is he's saying, listen, you guys are more concerned about the operations of the temple than the God that the temple was built to worship. Right? You're more worried about um, the, the form than the one that you are worshiping, the one that makes it holy. Verse 19, you blind men, for which is greater, the gift of the altar or that which makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So what sin does is it causes us to mix up our priorities. I'll give you a couple of different examples, and, and Jesus gives us a few examples here. He says, 
If you swear by the temple, it doesn't mean anything. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, Jesus is saying you only care about the gift. You only care about the work of the temple. You only care about what was offered. You don't care about the God that it was offered to. Right? And then he, he goes on to describe this a little bit further. This is the same idea when he says you tithe on the spices in your cupboard, but you don't care about justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus is, saying, is not saying that tithing isn't important here. In fact, um, when, the, when the law was given, um, the people would actually pay three different tithes. I don't know if you've heard this before, but the first tithe would be the tithe that would cover the administration of the temple and the sacrifices and the priests and the Levites and the upkeep of the buildings and the altars and all that other stuff. And that's similar to what we talk about today when we say, um, that you should tithe as well. Uh, the second tithe was for the festivals. And so this would be an additional 10% that would cover the cost of the, fe the festivals. And you might want to think of, of this like prepaying for a group vacation. All right, This was three times a year these families would come and make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate these week-long festivals. There were three of them. There was the... the um, Passover, there was the Feast of the Tabernacles, and then there was um, uh, Shabbat, which is the Feast of Weeks as well. And they would come down and they would have these big celebrations, and the tithe that they paid, the, the second tithe, would pay for those trips as well. And then the third tithe was one that was only paid every three years, and that was given to the poor. So that would take care of of those who were in need. This would be similar to what we now talk about when we refer to missions giving. So this would be um, like benevolence or like the backpack fundraiser or the Christmas store that we do through Love, Inc. Or um, we have Speed the Light digs water wells in, in nations that are underdeveloped. Or we help build Bible schools in through Priority One. Those things would be um, similar to what they, they gave that, that every three-year tithe to as well. But Jesus isn't talking about those things here. What he's talking about is the Pharisees were literally taking the cumin seeds and the mint leaves that they grew in their gardens and counting out a tenth of that and tithing on that as well. It'd be like if after church today, somebody invited you out to eat and you didn't pay for the meal. So you thought, well, I better tithe on this because this was given to me, and so you take a tenth of your burger and a tenth of your french fries, and you box it up and bring it to church. <laughs> now, listen, that's, I mean, listen, that's, that's a nice thought, right? But that's, that's really not getting the heart of the message, is it? It's a little ridiculous. And, and what Jesus says to them is, you're tithing on the spices from your garden. Great. That's actually kind of cool. Do that, but don't do it at the expense of not caring about the things that matter way more than that. Right? They're taking something and turning it into something that's important when it was not really that important. Maybe it was a nice gesture, right? But it wasn't the heart of what God was calling them to do. He says, don't you care about justice and mercy and faithfulness? God cares about your heart 
more than your spices. I love that last line that, that Jesus says. He says, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. There's a very specific and very spiritual term that describes this method of teaching that Jesus is using right here. It's called comedy. <laughs> right? Jesus got jokes, okay? I mean, when he would have said that, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, people would have chuckled because that's funny, right? The mental picture that you get of somebody straining out a gnat and then trying to drink a camel is a funny picture. And, and some scholars believe that Jews would actually do this, that they would take their drinks and strain them out because a gnat is actually the smallest unclean animal. And if they would eat a gnat by accident, they would be violating the law. And the camel actually would be the largest unclean animal in that region that they were aware of. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you're missing the bigger picture, right? You're caring about things that don't matter. But if that's your conviction, if that's what God is putting on your heart, do that. Just don't neglect the important things in the process. priorities are backward. Verse 25, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, there's more to this passage, but we're actually going to um, stop reading there. And the last thing that I want us to recognize is that sin turns us into hypocrites. And I want to close by asking a question this morning. And that question is, how are you living as a hypocrite? Not, are you living as a hypocrite? <laughs> I want you to understand the difference there. How are you living as a hypocrite? This is, not, um, this is one of those messages where we just all frankly need to be honest and realize that there's hypocrisy in all of our lives. There are things that we believe and things that we say that are not right before God, that are wrong in our heart. And so this message is for every single one of us. And it's just a matter of what the Holy Spirit wants to address in your life. As I was writing this message, I literally had my own little repentance session for myself. God pointed out some areas of hypocrisy in my life. And you know what? Let's tell you what it is. 
I was feeling pretty unmerciful towards people. There were things that, that people were doing, and I was being incredibly judgmental about the way that they were behaving. And it wasn't that they were right. In fact, yeah, they were still wrong. But God reminded me of his mercy that he showed me in the times where I've acted like a moron and how I didn't have any right to judge someone else in that position. That was what the Holy Spirit brought up in my life. And as, as I was wrestling with that and I was, as I was struggling with that, I just said, okay, I need you to do some work in my life, God. I need you to fix this in me. Give me the right heart. Change me from the inside out. Clean up the inside of the cup so that the inside matches the outside. So maybe your hypocrisy is a number of different things. Maybe it's the way that you interact with your family. Maybe Sunday at church is a show to cover up the way that you really treat your spouse or your kids. And you lose your temper before church and on the way to church and then put that smile on your face the moment you walk in the door and cover up what's really going on inside. Maybe your hypocrisy is in tithing. Maybe you've given God parts of your life, but you haven't surrendered your money yet. You know, back then, public was a, or tithing was a very public thing. Um, you came and gave it in a very public setting. But today, the way that our money works, it's very much a private thing. And only God knows what's in your heart in that area as well. Are you honoring the Lord in that way? Maybe it's the person you are online versus the person you are in real life. Does the stuff that you post reflect the heart of God? Do the comments that you make online demonstrate the character that God wants for your life? Listen, those are just examples, and they're just a few examples, and maybe they fit your situation, but those are just my examples. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit and let him tell you the areas in your heart that aren't right before the Lord. And I believe that if you ask him, he'll do it. Now, the hard part is we don't really want to ask a lot of the time. I feel that way myself. Um, the prayer that, that David prayed, search my heart, O God, see if there's any wicked way in me. I don't like praying that prayer. I usually find out that there is some stuff that's wrong with me. But if we want to be the people that God wants us to be, then we ought to be willing to pray that prayer. Say, God, show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm sinful. Show me the areas of my life where I've been a hypocrite so that I can be more like you. Now the, the other thing that scripture tells us to do with our sin, and uh, this, is, this is the hard part, <laughs> it's confessing our sin to each other. The book of James says that if we confess to one another, we do so that we might be healed. Healing comes through confession. So in a moment here, we're going to just give the Holy Spirit a second to speak to us and show us what's wrong in our heart. 
But if you really want to take a step towards true healing from that sinfulness, find somebody that you trust. Share what God's doing in your heart and confess to them. Let them pray for you. And James tells us that that's how healing comes as well. So let's just take a few minutes in the quiet of this place and let the Holy Spirit speak to us right now and then I'll pray in just a second. Lord, we humbly come before you. Say, God, whatever you're speaking to us right now, Lord, change our hearts. Make us right before you. Purify us from the inside so that the inside matches the outside, God. Help us to be more like you, both inside and out. Help us to live our lives in a way that reflects your love and is backed up by our character. Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And today we wear the robe of righteousness that was given to us through the work on on the cross. Lord, help us to recognize that we live in your grace and in your mercy. So help us to be Lord, patient with others and patient with ourselves as we grow closer to you as well. Lord, we thank you for your work of sanctification. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.